Hey guys, welcome back to season four here with Dad. Today we're going to be discussing Pacific Navies, Australia, Japan and Taiwan. How are you feeling today, Dad? Really good, Wayne. Really good. How you recovered from your extraction from the last podcast when you were still slightly drugged up? Yeah, well, uh, not having to use a cogen anymore. I can actually speak properly. It's a bit of a win-win all round. Maybe we'll get through this episode without me slurring anything. Um, but fingers crossed, you can only remain hopeful. We're going to run through some figures before we start the episode to give you guys some background. Looking at their navies, the fleet strength of Australia is 43 ships. The Japanese possess 155 and the Taiwanese 117. The Australians have two heli carriers, the Japanese four and the Taiwanese none. The Australians have six submarines, the Japanese 21, the Taiwanese four. The Australians have three destroyers, the Japanese 36 destroyers and the Taiwanese four destroyers, which represents a significant difference in destroyer numbers between these three fleets. Frigate-wise, the Australians possess eight, the Japanese four, and the Taiwanese 22, signifying an increased reliance on frigates from the Taiwanese. Patrol vessels, the Japanese possess six, the Australians 12, and the Taiwanese 43. Before we go into anything, we're just going to clarify something, and that is the difference between destroyers and frigates. Destroyers are larger, heavier, faster, and generally more powerful. They have more advanced defense and attack capabilities and can take on larger threats. Frigates are more focused on anti-submarine missions and often escort larger ships or group up with other frigates. Destroyers also cost more than frigates. Because destroyers are bigger, they carry more weapons, and this makes them more powerful. In general, frigates are more cost-efficient, but worse at air defense and general capability, which is perhaps why Taiwan, having a smaller GDP than the others, has their fleet focused more on frigates, whereas Japan, having a high GDP, has a very high number of destroyers, which are more capable. So, Dad, let's start talking. So in that, we mentioned a few heli carriers, and we haven't really talked about heli carriers in the last episode. They are essentially light aircraft carriers. The Japanese have now outfitted their light carriers to allow for F-35Bs, a fixed-wing aircraft, to take off. Um, so... Looking at the numbers that they can carry, Australia's Canberra-class helicopter carriers can carry up to 18 helicopters each. The Japanese heli carriers altogether, given their four different carriers, have the capacity to carry 92 aircraft. That is a significant number of aircraft, and so calling them light carriers and simply dismissing them as such is perhaps ignorant. Do you think that they are capable of power projection in the Pacific? So let's go back a little bit to the to the light carrier ethos. And the Royal Navy had a problem when it got rid of its the HMS Ark Royal, its last big fixed wing cats and traps carrier. And when it wanted to reintroduce them against, you know, public opinion or the politicians of the time, it created the invincible class cruiser. Through deck cruisers, they slipped in using the word. And those through deck cruisers basically were helicopter carriers. And along came the Sea Harrier, and actually now they were light carriers. And we know what a difference they made in terms of the Falklands War, where they're able to create local air, air defence mechanisms. Sea Harrier's armed with sidewinders killed an awful lot of Argentine planes with Sharky Ward as one of the squadron commanders, and they proved to be one of the key deciding factors. So, you know, light carriers, heavy carriers, let's look at the difference. The super carriers that America has are able to launch with their steam catapults all range of aircraft, whether they're Super Hornets, whether they're F-35Cs, uh, which are the strike components, 
whether they're growlers, which are in the form of uh, Super Hornet um, airframes, or AWACS like the Hawkeye, they can launch a multi-dimensional air wing and they can launch them when they're very heavy loaded, which is what a, a catapult does, and they can recover them on their on their trap system. That gives them effectively a combat range out to 640 nautical miles, which was how the whole of the US carrier strike force was composed. You get within 500 miles of your enemy and you pummel it to death with somewhere up to 180 or 220 missions a day, and no one can survive. So the light carriers are completely different. And in a strange, interesting way, the the Royal Navy ships, uh, which are conventionally carrier powered, which gives them a disadvantage, of course, uh, you know, they need to be refueled. But all carriers have to have solid refueling for their crews to survive anyway. And interesting enough, there are huge limitations with nuclear powered ships going to only a few ports around the world. So conventionally, these carriers are they're lighter. They're about 75,000 tons versus 105, mainly because of the nuclear reactors and the shielding that goes with it. But the net effect of the process is that our carriers in the UK don't have any cats and traps, thanks to a decision made to save money and not go for the F-35C, but you go for the F-35B, which is a stall, goes off a ski ramp, and it can launch, land vertically sideways onto the ship. The problem with that solution, and it really is a big problem, is the range is even more curtailed with the F-35B because it carries with it all the lift engines to get it off the deck and land back on with vertical launch. That means it can't go as far. The airframe isn't as big as the F-35C. And so it's much more like a local air superiority bubble than it is actually a strike mechanism. And for the Japanese that have converted their, in effect, assault carriers, which is one of the things the U.S. Navy is talking about, it has one, these are sort of like 28, 40,000 40, ton ships, which are amphibious launch ships with docks at the back designed to get a whole Marine division ashore or Marine battalion ashore with air power. They, 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 and, and they had carriers, so they had Harriers rather. The Harriers are replaced by F-35Bs. And now there's a conversation about whether these ships can be completely converted like the USS America into a light carrier mode. But again, they're not, I, I actually say, I'm not even sure our strike carriers are strike carriers with aerodynamic weapons that the Japanese use. That means you can't get within a thousand miles or be sunk. But even more so, their range is now very limited. The U.S. Navy's tried to compensate for that with Stingray drones, which are stealthy fueling systems that go out to certain limit lines, refuel their fighters and maybe get them out to 800 miles. But that's not enough at the moment. It has to be much further. So. Think of these F-35B, you know, converted helicopter carriers with ASW capabilities into a bit like escort carriers from the Second World War. They provide air defense bubbles that then let their ships do their do their missions in contested water. And that's a big step forward. And as you quite rightly say, you know, you look at the, the problem for the Japanese Navy has been a shift from a defensive mode to a much more offensive mode. Um, and the two go together in modern warfare. And these helicopter carriers you know, were apparently benign, and there's a need for compensating for Chinese carriers has come to the fore. The, their conversion with decks that are strong enough to take the downwash from the jet engines and add 35Bs is now coming onto line. Um, and that's happening everywhere. You know, F-35Bs are going on small deck carriers because they give localized air defense systems. And they also give a phenomenal I-Star capability. That's a, because one thing about the 35 
is that it has an incredible systems integration and it shares data with other systems and sensors. So it's much more than just a singly capable fighter. It's essentially um, a force multiplier by using the ship's radar with its own radar and other aircraft's radar, all integrated into an integrated picture, which as we've seen in Ukraine, integrated pictures give battlefield situational awareness in a completely different way. So enhancement to a surface battle fleet is huge. So I think it's a big step forward for the Japanese and the Koreans. And the Australians are doing the same thing with their small carriers, giving them that conversion capability. That's a positive. But think of them as moving air defense bubbles that can control space out to sort of 300 miles if they're lucky, which means the ships are more secure operating within the bubble. Or if you're going to go and do a amphibious operation, you might be able to project that envelope over the small islands you're operating into. Over the past couple of years, three years, the Japanese have converted their carriers to take these F-35B fighters. What do you think of that move? Because that seems to me to be quite a drastic step in updating your carriers to be able to take fighter aircraft compared to helicopters. Do they see China as an increasing threat and that has prompted this move? Across the whole Pacific. And, you know, if we are worried about Russia and Europe, they're worried squared about China. That means... South Korea is worried about the North Koreans as their agents moving south and the Chinese helping them. It means Japan feels truly endangered when well over 55% of all Chinese believe they will almost certainly go to war with Japan. And they're very close to China. And so their basing structures and their Navy are right in the fire line. And then you've also got the Australians, which, as you notice, are, are really waking up. And, you know, of all the Anglosphere nations, I'd say they are the most feisty. They were the only nation that actually accused the Chinese of releasing COVID rather than it being some accidental migration from somewhere in a bat cave. And they were vociferous about it. And they are vociferous about recognizing the threat they face. And they've had a recent defense review. And the defense review is actually, I'd say, far more realistic than the review that Britain conducts. And it's concluded that its best defense is a forward defense that allows for missiles and ships to protect the island chains from Papua New Guinea out to the Solomon Islands exactly the same way as they tried to do and succeeded to do with American help in the Second World War. And Guadalcanal was one of those key moments in the defense of that line, which ultimately fell in the favor of the Allies. But of course, modern day, you know, Chinese have been smart. They just basically paid the backhanders of, a, of Solomon Islands politicians and got themselves basing rights. Um, so, and that's a very threatening construct. But the, the 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 whole force structure of Australia is, you know, about ships and submarines. And although Arcus is, you know, to deliver submarines in the future, which will have no bearing to what's about to happen to us as this whole conflict unfolds, it is really essentially an alliance between America, Australia, and Britain that recognises. That Australia, in the case of the red lightning scenario where the, they, the Chinese take everything out to the second island chain and include it in a greater prosperity empire, Australia ends up acting just like Britain as an aircraft carrier from which the, the, the fight back can be mounted. And so Arcus is way more than about submarines. It's really about the Anglosphere saying that's the base upon which we will fight back from, far enough away from the long-range weapon systems China has, that so they could establish power and then migrate north, as they did do in the Pacific conflict in the Second World War. 
And you see some really interesting things. I mean, they're Collins-class submarines, are conventional SSKs, you know, and they're old and a bit knackered, and, and they're operational. Like, they're 20 years old, aren't they? So yeah, they're they not are. Exactly and, you know, and, and the thing is also, conventional submarines, you know, um, air-independent submarines, as they're called, that use Stirling engines or air-independent mechanisms, can operate for three weeks underwater. They don't have the cooling pumps of a nuclear submarine, so they're incredibly quiet. What they don't have is the volume in their hull for the massive sensors that um, SSMs have, like the Astute class or the Virginia class or, you know, or, or the Los Angeles class in a previous older format. But they are able to sit around and loiter in shallow waters very effectively and do a lot of damage. So I think you know protecting their own coastline is the function of of conventional um, air independent SSKs. The projection of power forward, which Australia needs for its defence, is very much a nuclear attack submarine's job as an SSN, and that's why they need them. But even that relationship with Arcus means that American and British submarines—not that Britain should do because we don't have enough of them at the moment—that operating only six or seven, we should be at twelve. Can't really spare them. But the idea of basing them and then moving north means they're logistical lines of operation are shortened and they could do more damage. But one of the interesting things in the Type 26 program, and the British Type 26 program is arguably, the, it is a replacement of the 23. And the 23 was, in its time, the best submarine hunter in the world. That meant every single piece of machinery was sound insulated from the hull. A submarine on the surface it was, could not hear the frigate operating above it. And with an effective towed array radar system, it became a very lethal subhunter. And ours are all running out of juice and, they're, and then, you know, their, their maintenance cycles are coming to the end. And the 26 was decided to replace them, the hunter class, and, or they're called different names in Canada, Britain and Australia. And what is really noticeable is the Royal Navy's had a habit of getting hulls and then trying to add weapon systems, or it never really adds to weapon systems. But Canada and Australia wanted to turn their 26s into very capable all-around combat craft, much like you know a destroyer. You can't tell the difference. A modern frigate of five and a half thousand tons compared to a destroyer, which is eight and a half thousand tons. Some of these frigates are now like seven and a half thousand tons. There's not much difference. And the volume of the hull means they can carry more equipment and more sensors. But it was the fact that they were putting lethality into their ships, to me, that really showed Australia understood the threat it was coming up against. So it's putting a ship to sit. It doesn't have the weapon systems to fight the enemy. And the Royal Navy has now a terrible, terrible ingrained non-lethality habit that needs to be redressed very quickly. But in Canada and Australia, they're a much more realistic perspective. Let's have a little look at these fleets, frigates and destroyers, now you've touched upon the subject. Uh, one thing I noticed is that Australia has a small number of frigates and destroyers. So they do, however, seem fairly capable. Uh, and like you said, the difference is not astounding. Their ANZAC-class frigates can carry 32 Sea Sparrow missiles, eight Harpoon missiles and deck gun. Whether their Hobart class destroyers can carry 48 sea sparrows, eight harpoons, and some bushmasters as well. So the difference is there, but it's not gigantic. Well, well the Hobart is an air defence destroyer, and it's a pretty, it's a reasonably capable air defence system too. So it's designed for fleet air defence. Frigates are more, as you said earlier, about ASW capabilities. And there, there is two, there are two forms of thought about this: is that the Royal Navy, for example, chose to separate out its air defence capabilities into destroyers and their predecessors were the Type 42s, which didn't do too well in the Falklands because with sea guards didn't have the ability to fire enough missiles. And then they supplemented um, the Type 22 frigates with Seawolf, which actually were there to defend the Type 42s with their point defence Seawolves. 
And the evolution of that is a Type 45 air defense destroyer that with a multi-phasic Samsung radar is the most effective air defense destroyer in the world. The longest range, greatest definition, and fitted with um, with the Sea Viper system and, uh, and the Aster missiles are really effective. 48 individual missiles, one missile per incoming target, they all be launched in one and a half minutes. The most capable air defense destroyer in the world, apart from it hasn't been adapted for ballistic missile defense. The American Aegeus system is based in America around two systems, the Triconda-class cruisers, which have about a, a 126, 128 Mark 41 launch cells. They have a spy, a spy radar, um, and they have a, 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 um, a targeting system. So they detect the incoming, incoming missile. The targeting missile systems can track about 28 outgoing missiles at one time, and the problem with the SM3s, SM6s, is their kill ratios are less than sufficient, unlike a Sea Viper, that you have to fire two missiles at one incoming target. So that means any Triconda-class or GS-class ship can launch against 14 incoming missiles at one time. Fire 15, and you'll kill the ship. That's sobering. You can fire 48 missiles at a Type 45 destroyer, and it will defend against them, and the problem comes with the 49. That means a Type 45 destroyer is three times more effective than an American Aegeus-class ship against every system apart from ballistic missile or hypersonic weapon systems, because that's a different modification. And the Chinese, the Japanese rather, and the South Koreans have all integrated Aegeus-class systems into bigger destroyers. They're more like cruisers in many ways, and they have a very big class of ship with bigger volumetrics, more censoring capability, but what they are is all-around ships. They integrated their frigate capability with their destroyer capability. So these are multi-purpose platforms for ASW and air defense. And so that's the basis of the U.S. Navy's uh, sort of Ali, Ali Burke. And there's a whole lot of flights of evolution. They're but but despite that weakness, Dad, despite the weakness in the Aegeus interception, the Japanese Navy integrating their Aegeus, uh, the Aegeus system seem to have a very modern navy capable of defending itself and numbers that are sufficient to actually cause some damage in a possible war. The best, the best way to think about it is as an adjunct to the U.S. Navy. And it's literally you know, one quarter to one third of the side of the U.S. Navy. So if you look at the force structure that the Chinese face, there's no way that the Americans can afford to see the Japanese navy go down under the weight of a Chinese attack without supporting the Japanese because it is a, it's a theater-winning balance of power. And you can add some of the, you know, the South Korean ships to that. They're, they're much lighter class of ships um, around, around, you know, local, lo their sort of you know, attack craft and various others, partly because of their proximity of their bases to the North Koreans, which means you don't want big units operating that way. And the North so Koreans themselves operate a river fleet. So these small ships can combat small ships effectively. They, they are. And, you know, when you look at the effectiveness of missiles, Against big ships, small ships can kill big ships now. And lots of small ships, if they get through screens, become very dangerous. And with, you know, exosets and the equivalent harpoons and stealthier versions coming down the track, they're pretty lethal pieces of kit that can launch up to 150 miles away from a main combat unit. So that the sea domains become complex, lethal, and, but net net, I think the message when you, when you want to talk about these, these three navies is that if you're Chinese, you don't just face the American Navy. 
And you've got to think about the American pivot to, to, to the region meant that 60% of the Navy's force structure, whether it's in forward deployed in Japan or on the West Coast, was dedicated to containing the Chinese Navy. But it also includes the Japanese Navy, the South Korean Navy, and to a limited extent, the Australian Navy. But I think we should think about them as much more defending their own waters rather than projecting power. The fleet's too small to project power effectively, surely. It's really about their defense of their home waters and, and at the moment. Um, so, but if you're Chinese, it's significant. You know, the Japanese Navy is highly capable. It operates to the same, if not higher standards in some realms. There's 21 SSKs, which, you know, it balances against 60 SSKs or submarines, um, you know, for the, for the Chinese, 58 or whatever. So it's a significant force balance. Well, I'm glad you brought up the fact that small ships are now a danger because looking at the Taiwanese Navy, they seem to be quite heavily reliant on patrol vessels. They have 43 in their Navy. And the most common class of their patrol vessels is a Chiang Chang class, and they carry four supersonic ship-to-ship missiles as well as a 76-millimeter gun. And they're quite numerous, but you can't just discount these ships because if they get through a screen, surely they could do some damage. Well, the other thing about multiple launch vehicles is that you know if you have a target and you deploy 20 of them and you do employ them in a, in a 360 degree azimuth. The defenses have multiple avenues of attack to defend against. It's not just saturation, it's the point at which the saturation comes from. When you think of, you know, two harpoons killed the Moskova, just two harpoons, one Exocet killed HMS Sheffield. You know, you only have to let one of these suckers through and you lose your ship. Now, the way that defenses are defined in the West is, we obviously have screened defences. So if you take a Type 45, it has a longer range Aster 30, and it has a shorter range Aster 15, which is a bit like a, you know, like a, a rear mall, you know, so out to sort of 10 miles or so. And then your last ditch is a Gatling gun system, which you hope is, or seawiz as the Americans call it, which you hope is going to stop anything that slips through. But there's always a point at which saturation takes place. And for a Type 45, it's 49. For uh, an Aegeus class ship, it's you know it's the equivalent of of fifteen, and these missiles have become cheap enough to actually you can make enough of them, and if you can get them in platforms that launches, they're a serious threat. So the whole paradigm of war is changing, and observation is changing too. You know, as we found out about in Ukraine, the drones some of these drones are small enough that they don't turn up on radar, or they're hard to counter. How do you kill a three-foot drone with a bloody expensive missile that's out of range of your guns? And yet it can observe you, you can't shoot it down. So we've got a whole issue about observation versus um, air superiority and control that lasers would solve very nicely. And I think we're probably looking at a, a new class of optical sensors that actually look at small drones above you visually rather than the other way around. If, they, if they're looking at you, you should be able to see them. Um, and then equipping them with lasers in time, because this, this process of being observed in Ukraine, despite the attritional rate of the observing drones, is a is a game changing in warfare, game changer. What do you make of the Taiwanese reliance on frigates compared to destroyers? Look, basically, the Taiwanese Navy, the whole armed force structure needs to be updated. They're not like the Japanese and. I've always been fascinated by you know, the Japanese spend about the same as Britain on their defense, but they have a serious navy, whereas we have a seriously not navy. You know, we like to think we are, but we just haven't got enough platforms and they're not lethal enough. You know, we've got carriers with 
12 35s if you're lucky when they're meant to have 48 and the bloody f-35b's still don't have a system where they can destroy a ship apart from dropping a bomb overhead for the most expensive stealth fighter we bought we're mad we've lost the plot the japanese haven't they have a fully integrated lethal system they have an air force which we would die for and an army that's significant how did they do that on less spending than we have in britain do you not think that's because there's an omnipresent threat no i think to coalesce I think it's completely to do with the absolute uselessness of the MOD. They are absolutely a disaster in every acquisition program we have followed. And the monopoly of our defence contractors, the combination has created for the British taxpayer this massive, massive process where we spend a fair amount on defence, but get very little in return through mismanagement, misleadership, poor vision in terms of outlanding weapons systems, I would actually go and turn the MOD inside out. Um, we need to spend more and we need to operate our defences, but we need a top-down revolution in the people organising it. Let's get back to the frigates for Taiwan. So you were saying that they need to overhaul their defence structure. They need, they need, they just need more modern equipment and they need, I mean, you know, the Taiwanese fly F-16s. And the J-20 is a more sophisticated, stealthy fighter, although it's vastly under the capabilities of a 35 or F-22. They just don't have enough. And um, I think that's been historically because America's been fearful of arming Taiwan appropriately. Taiwan's got a lot of American hand-me-downs throughout the years, so they are effective, they're just outdated. Yeah, well, when you're looking at the Chinese and now looking at cutting-edge technology, that's not good enough. Okay, against the Type 55. Yeah, like, you know, look at at the Type 055, destroyed, it's almost like 13,500 tons. It's a cruiser, and it's every bit as capable, perceived to be, as effectively. Um, so in um, for, for a Ticonderoga, for example, which is now an outdated ship needing to be replaced. That's a very important thing, is that the Chinese shipbuilding capability in war is estimated to be of the order of 100 platforms, big platforms, 100 to 10,000 tons apiece on average, a year, and the American Navy could build 20 if it was lucky a year. Take out South Korea, the shipbuilding capability, take out Japan, and in a naval arms race, by the time the Chinese have taken over everything in the second island chain, assuming they can get the resources into their economic base to actually build them, they can outbuild the whole of the world in the most terrifying ship arms race that in the Second World War meant America ended up ruling the seas. So, Dad, looking at these three fleets, what do you make of their capacity and capability to work together? in a possible war? Well, that's what's really fantastic, is they are fully integrated into the US fleet structure. So all of these systems, like NATO systems over the decades, have been built up, so they're all interoperable, they can all intercommunicate, and they can share network data. So think of it as an extension of the US Navy. And that's a very formidable construct for the Chinese to face. You're not looking at disparate fleets, can't talk to each other, they have similar operating doctrines as well, because often, you know, when you have a hegemonic structure like the US Navy, it becomes best practice and it shares and spreads it amongst its allies. So it is, to all intents and purposes, as far as the Chinese are concerned, it's just an addition to the US fleet. And it's one of the thresholds that they have and they're concerned about. If you look at the integration of those three fleets with 60% of the US force structure, and that's sort of... more ships than the Chinese have, and by tonnage, even greater. Which brings me back to this point and threat that the only way the Chinese can overcome this challenge, 
and you know, otherwise they necessarily have an arms race for the next two decades, which they don't have time to do, essentially is a lightning strike that wipes everything out within the second island chain. And that's why they built ballistic missile systems with hypersonic warheads to create this aerial denial strategy, which means you remove your opposition in one strike or a number of strikes if you're unlucky. And that gives them then control of everything in the second island chain. And I still believe that's basically their primary way of coping with removing American power from the region and its allies. Do you think the ballistic missile threat to the Pacific navies of Taiwan, Australia, Japan and America negates their advantages over China? Yes. I mean, Australia is too far away for a DF-26 to hit them. I think in time we'll see the same hypersonic weapons being put on a DF-41, which could then reach Portsmouth, but that's later on. They, their building capability of long-range missiles is now for their missile fields and their strategic missile deterrent. But in the short term, yeah, all of these ships based around South Korea and Japan and the U.S. Navy in the same region are all deeply vulnerable to saturation attacks by either conventional ballistic warheads, which have been you know, designed to kill carriers, or you know, the steroidal version, which is hypersonic jinking versions, which are coming online in DF-17 type structures. Either way, right now, the whole balance of power has changed. And I would argue that hegemonic balance of power where Pax America, the followed Pax Britannica, was untouchable, ended from about 2019 onwards when the Chinese started to build DF-21s and 26s with conventional ballistic warheads to kill carriers, which required the Americans to make put more SM6s into their ships, which can then kill a ballistic system on a predictable path. And the counter to that was hypersonic glide weapons, which are non-predictable, to which we have no solution to at the moment. What do you make of the submarine capability of these three fleets? Do you think they are effective? You said that the Collins class for Australia is effective in loitering and possible, you know, guerrilla operations. The Japanese seem to have some effective submarines, but the Taiwanese maybe are lacking in that area. Yeah, I look, I think the so the Chinese air and the Japanese air independent submarine fleet is very capable and ideally suited to operations in the region in littorial zones. And they're supplemented by American submarines that, you know, are at the cutting edge of of submarine technology. And that combination puts the Chinese on the back foot any time it goes into the deep seas of the second island chain. However, the Chinese have created listing devices like our Salter system on the, the floor of the South China Sea, and certainly in the ingress points and the island choke points to get into it. So I think the challenge of operating submarines in those regions is enormous. But think of it as, you know, uh, they are capable and they are a threat. The combination of the U.S. submarine force and the SSKs from Japan are a big threat to the Chinese. And it's the one domain that they won't get superiority in very quickly, if at all. Despite the help from the Russian Pacific fleet of submarines, which seems to be much more capable than their surface fleet. It, the, US, the Russian submarine fleet is the most capable, non-conventional weapon that the Russians have. And um, the real jump forward started with some of the designs after the Cold War um, and uh, a number of those the victors got out into the um, Atlantic Ocean right at the end of the Cold War, ran riot. It was a wake-up call that new silent technology was on the way. Then the next step was basically the Yasin-class submarine, known colloquially as the SEV, 
um, after its first ship of its type. And that's a hunter-killer submarine. It's actually a, a hunter-killer submarine like American submarines with cruise missile capability. And those submarines, or the SEV, was so quiet we couldn't detect it when it first came out. Russian maintenance programs aren't so good. And uh, it said that the reactor pipes are now furred up sufficiently. You can hear the submarine transit for the first time. But the Borealis-class um, SSBN, ballistic missile submarines, are equally as quiet. And those submarines based out of Vladivostok are a threat, without doubt. And, uh, you know, there aren't that many around. There'll be more in the future. I think the ultimate thing that scares me the most is the transference of Russian submarine technology to the PLAN. Because with their shipbuilding capability, they can outbuild anyone when it comes to making quiet Russian designed submarines for their Navy. And that is something that, you know, in the next 10 years, I think we have to face on a huge scale. If we don't have war beforehand, then we're going to face you know, a huge Chinese Navy, equally capable to anything else we can deploy in numbers we can't face, which will give them control of the seas. But they've created some limitations that I think will mean they'll have to act well before that. As ever, Dad, thank you for your insight. That's all we have time for today. How are you feeling after that? So often in Western history, it's been decided by naval power. And once more, you know, Pax Britannica was based on the battleship and our ability to use cruisers to control global sea lanes. And what you're looking at here is America's carrier power, which gave it Pax America, has now been ablated. And with that ablation, we are seeing the conflict in Russia, which would not have been happening if hypersonic weapons weren't a reality. Hypersonic weapons emboldened the challenge because they're the asymmetric weapon of challenge for hegemonic power. And so it's all about sea power. It continues to be all about sea power. And on that last little bit of insight, thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time. David Murren specializes in using the past to predict the future and is an accomplished public speaker, hedge fund manager and market trader. To date, he's authored three books. Breaking the Code of History, Lions Led by Lions, and Now and Ever. He also writes a blog on his website, www.davidmerrin.co.uk, where you can find more on his life, views, and work.